Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Now, if you're a guest with us this morning, you're like, wow, that sounds really heavy. Uh, and uh, we don't always go through that stuff that's this heavy, uh, but we also don't shy away from heavy stuff. We, as a church, we're committed to preaching all of God's Word, which means sometimes you run across stuff that's uh, not the easiest to talk about. But also, we've been in a series about the church, or what is the church, and what type of church is City on a Hill. And so even if you've been with us the last few weeks, and you've heard us talk about prayer and being a praying church, or the church as a community, you may be wondering, man, what does the passage we just read have to do with us? It's easy for us to miss what's going on around the world in other churches. Uh, one of the most devastating events in modern U.S. history was Hurricane Katrina, uh, which is crazy to think that happened almost 20 years ago, happened in 2005. But the impact of Hurricane Katrina can, cannot be overstated. Uh, over 1,800 people died during Hurricane Katrina. It destroyed over 800,000 homes. 1.2 million people were evacuated from New Orleans, and 230,000 people were permanently displaced and never returned to their homes. And, and so in the, the aftermath of all this, it caused over $160 billion worth of damage. This is unfathomable. And you, you can't imagine that someone would not hear about this event, but that's exactly what happened to me. I was living in Alaska with my wife. I'd moved there in 2004, met Amy, we got married. And, um, and in Alaska at this time, the internet's not very good. There are no smartphones. I didn't talk to anybody from the States for weeks at a time. I literally had no clue what was happening other than like the moose running through my front yard. I knew nothing. And so I remember talking to my mom about a week after Katrina and she starts mentioning this and I'm like, what are you talking about? What do you mean some massive hurricane that changed everyone's lives? And I actually found a newspaper. I found a physical newspaper. That's how long ago this was and looked it up and, and was just blown away by the thing that had been happening right all around me, but I never knew it. And so Acts chapter 7 and chapter 8 feels like that for the church in America. We are kind of going about our lives sort of insulated from what's happening around the world. And we need to see that while this is not our experience as the church in Boston, this is the experience of many Christians around the world. And it's important for us as a local church to understand our place as part of the global church. A local church is a local group of people in a time and place called together around the same mission to make Jesus known. You can say, these are my people and this is my mission. That is a local church. City on a Hill is a local church. But the church is bigger than just our local church. The church also involves us being a part of a global church, all believers across the world with a common hope in Jesus, that we have this big extended family, that while this may not be our experience, this is the experience of many Christians around the world. God's church is bigger than city on a hill. God's church is bigger than the City on a Hill network. God's church is bigger than the Send network and our tribe. It's bigger than Harbor. It's bigger than all of these things. It's bigger than the church in America. But it's easy for us to be insulated from what is happening around the world. So it's vital for us to give our attention to what's going on in other places 
and what other Christians face every single day. And we do this for two reasons. One is for our good. It builds our faith when we understand what God is doing around the world. But also it is for the good of Christians around the world because Christians around the world begin to be mobilized and pray for the global church. And so this morning, we're gonna look at the story of Stephen and how paying attention to the global church helps us be the local church. Well, the first way that this helps is it helps raise our awareness. If you look in chapter seven, verse 54, it says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth in him. Have you ever been so angry at someone that you just clenched your jaw? Anybody been that angry before? I'm not gonna make you call it out. This isn't participation time. Um, but we've all been that angry. We're just so mad that you're afraid that if I don't clench my jaw, I'm just gonna say something I don't mean. The people of Jerusalem hear Stephen's words and they are furious. They're enraged, they're clenching their jaw. So what would make them so mad that they're ready to kill Stephen? If you go back to chapter six, we see that the first deacons are called and almost immediately they run into trouble. So the moral of the story is becoming a deacon is dangerous. That's not the moral of the story, but almost immediately uh, it becomes dangerous for him because Stephen is seized. He's seized by the authorities and they want to know what's going on because at this point, the church in Jerusalem is exploding. It is absolutely exploding. If you go back to Acts chapter one, we covered this a few weeks ago. The church was about 120 people gathered in a room praying together. Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. The church explodes into 3,000 people. And it's believed that by Acts chapter six, the church had grown to about 5,000 people. So the church is radically growing. And what happens with increased growth is you get increased attention. There's something that's happening. It's no longer this little group of people who aren't a problem and don't have influence. They are drawing attention and have now gotten the attention of the authorities. And as you get to Acts chapter seven, the authorities want to know what's going on. They're basically telling Stephen, explain this. And they sort of tee Stephen up for the gospel. And Stephen lays out this message for them and begins to walk through the history of his people. He talks about God's promises to Abraham. And we actually just went through the book of Genesis over the last year. So if you're not familiar with that, our, our church podcast, just go to the, our website, coahforestills.org slash, or just go to that and click on sermons. You can, you can see the history there. But he goes through and talks about God's faithfulness to Abraham to call a people together to bless the world. He, he, he goes on to talk about Joseph and how Joseph's brothers turned against him, but God used for good what they meant for evil. He goes on to talk about Moses and how God had established the law through Moses and took them out of, uh, of, of Egypt and took them to the promised land. And there's a common thread that runs through all of those stories is that the people heard and the people rejected. They heard God and then they rejected God. And what Stephen's point is, is you're doing the same thing that your ancestors did. Your ancestors rejected God, and now the Messiah has been standing right in front of you, but yet you've missed the path. Back in the 30s, uh, there was a, a Boy Scout who was 12 years old named Don Fendler, and he was summiting uh, Baxter's Peak up in Maine. And he's with his friend Henry, and then the boys are scrambling uh, to the top ahead of their main hiking party, including their father and, and Don's brothers. And it begins to rain, it begins to get cold, it begins to get scared. And Don decides that he's going to backtrack and try to find his father. 
But Henry is a little wiser. He knows that he needs to, to not do that. He's just going to hunker down and, and wait for his father to eventually catch up. Well, as Don goes back, he misses the trail and he becomes lost. And nine days later, he stumbles out of the woods with 16 pounds lighter, with no pants, no jacket, no shoes, and missing the tip of one of his big toes. He missed the way back. In the same way, the people of Israel missed the way back to God. It was standing right in front of them. Jesus, the Messiah, was standing in front of them, and they rejected him. And as Stephen calls them out on this, they respond by killing Stephen. Verse 57 says, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. This was mob justice. There was no procedures. There was no court. There was no trial. They just took his life by stoning him, which sounds exactly what it sounds like. It's throwing rocks at him until he dies. They couldn't face their own guilt. They stopped their ears like a toddler being told that they couldn't do what they wanted to do, and they killed him. And when we think about what this makes us aware of, firstly, it makes us aware that this is happening now. It's really easy for us to sort of take a story like this and just put it back 2,000 years ago and say, no, 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 the world's way more civilized. This type of stuff doesn't happen anymore, but this is happening in churches around the world. This has been a problem for over two millennia. There have been over 70 million martyrs killed for the Christian faith in history. And here's what's crazy. Half of those happened in the 20th century. And between 20, uh, 2000 and now, there have been between 100 and 160,000 people per year killed for believing in the Christian faith. There are Christians in over 60 countries where they face life-threatening consequences for being a Christian. Places like North Korea, many parts, other parts of Asia, the Middle East, and parts of Africa. This is happening now. We need to be made aware that this is a reality. But the other thing we need to be aware of is that God is not surprised by it. None of this is taking God by surprise because Jesus promised it. He said, if they hated me, the teacher, they will hate you, the students. Jesus promised in John chapter 16 that there will be trouble. Trouble will come, but also I will give you peace. God promised us his presence in a broken world, a fallen world, this longing to be made new. And this is why in Matthew chapter five, at the very beginning of Jesus' teaching, he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. A little note that may have ended up on the screen too, that there's hope in the middle of pain. Verse 11, blessed are you when, not if, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, on my account. Rejoice and be glad. In other words, your trials are not the end for you, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The persecuted church is promised both blessing and rejoicing. And as Stephen said in his message, this has been happening to the righteous forever, all the way back to Abraham. It's been the pattern, but this has not stopped God's mission from going forward. You'd imagine that this level of persecution would be something that would stamp 
out the Christian gospel, but in fact, it is the means by which God takes evil and turns it into good. And time and time again, and we don't have time to recount all the stories of the ways that God has done this. Every time across history where someone has tried to stamp out the gospel, it just grows. More people meet Jesus. So we see that God is not surprised by this, but we also become aware of the incredible faith of the persecuted. Man, how did Stephen face this? How did Stephen look this in the eye and say, man, I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna face this. It's in verse 55. He, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What incredible faith. To, to be staring death in the face and to look, instead of de- at death, to look to Jesus. The stories of, of the persecuted being given supernatural faith to face persecution, that there are an endless number of stories, but these are people who've been empowered to face anything for the sake of making Jesus known because they knew there was a greater joy to come because they would see Jesus in a unique way. Stephen looks up and he sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing there. And why this is important, because after Jesus ascended into heaven, every other description of Jesus is Jesus seated at the right hand of God. Yet here we see Jesus with his arms wide open, standing, waiting to receive Stephen, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what awaits them, and that's what drives their incredible faith, the promise that they will be received to the glory of God. There are Christians around the world right now facing daily pressure for believing in Jesus, and they do so because of the joy and the steadfastness that belong to Jesus that he gives to them through the Spirit, that they will know and experience his grace. Now, here's what this awareness does for us in Boston. We don't face this same level of scrutiny. We don't face this same level of pressure. But hard stuff does come into our lives. There are trials that that come, and we can face these with perseverance. Also, it's just not easy being a Christian here. It's not easy being a Christian at work or in the boardroom or in the lab or on the job site. It's not easy being a Christian and you go to a play group and people start to ask and you express that you're a Christian and all of a sudden they start to wander away. We've had that happen. It's not easy when you're at a social outing and somehow the subject of religion comes up and you mention Jesus and it gets quiet. And what it makes us want to do is it makes us want to hide. It makes us want to not be socially awkward. And what I want to make sure that we do is we talk about the call of Jesus, the call of receiving Christ, the call of discipleship. The Bible never says it's easy. It never promises an easy life or a life without hardship. But what it does say is that whatever we face in this world is worth it for the sake of knowing and making Jesus known. And this is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 talked about all the sufferings he faced being worth it because the grace of God was sufficient for him. We see that the grace of God is sufficient. The second way the global church helps us is it refocuses our attention. It is so easy for us to get our attention off of what matters most. Now, for the early church, this was such an incredible community. 
This is probably like the best church ever, right? It's growing, it's exploding, everybody loves each other, they're eating in each other's homes every day, they're blessing each other, there are miracles, lives are changing, it's the best teaching ever. I'd imagine the, the apostles, probably the best teachers ever. Their Instagram stories are on point, everything is good. And it would be easy for them to begin to shift their attention away from the fact that this is God's grace that is allowing this to happen to just being about the church of Jerusalem, just being about the brand, just being about their gatherings, just being about their community groups, just being about what they were receiving out of it, and yet them missing the greater directive that God gave them in Acts 1-8 to take the gospel from, to all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And it's easy for you and I to miss the same thing. We can make church about being city on a hill, we can make church about coming and getting what we want from it. Is the coffee good? Which we want the coffee to be good, but is the coffee good? Is my community group life giving? Is the, is the teaching the best I've ever heard? Is the music my preference? It's easy for us to make church about something other than what it's called to be. But what Stephen's death and, and the global church show us is that all those things don't really matter other than Jesus and his mission. His death shifts their attention back to Jesus and the mission. And what happens is, is he gazes at Christ. And this is what we're all called to do more than anything else, is to look at the beauty and the glory and the power of Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, it strips away all of evil's power. I don't know if there are any Harry Potter fans, but whether you read the books or you watched the movie, there was this one creature in there called a Bogart. And the Bogart would show you your greatest fear when it came out. And the way that you would fight the Bogart was to think of, of, a, of, a, of a more beautiful and powerful memory and say the word ridiculous. You may not be pronouncing that right for all the Harry Potter people, but ridiculous. And what would happen as you did that is that all of a sudden that thing that was scary would turn into the image of what you found to be beautiful. When we look at the evil of the world and say that compared to the power and the glory and the beauty of Jesus, it's ridiculous. Our gaze focuses on something more beautiful, more powerful, and we're reminded that God will bring us through as well. And when we see the global church doing this again and again and again, facing the longest odds, it reminds us that we can do the same thing. I can, I can, whatever I'm facing today, I can face it because I see other Christians who are doing the same thing. And we have to train our eyes where to look, to look away from our circumstances, to look away from our problems, to look away from our trials, to gaze at Jesus. Helps us see that. The second thing it does is it does refocus us toward the mission. Stephen's prayer is wild. I don't know that this would have been my prayer in that moment. I got people ready to throw rocks at me. They're ready to kill me. And he prays for those who persecute him. He says in verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In that moment, Stephen is reminded of the mission that we are to take the good news of Jesus to those who have not received forgiveness. The very people who were his enemy, he is praying for them to find salvation. And he takes up Jesus' words that we're called to love our enemies and wish well for them. And so how do, how do you treat your enemies? Or maybe just that annoying coworker. How do you treat them? 
Do you treat your, your hard kid at home as one who needs forgiveness or the distant parent who there's a lot of history with? Do you treat them with the need for forgiveness? And Stephen's response mirrors Jesus is on the cross where he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. When we look to Jesus and we look to his mission, it drives us towards our friends, our neighbors, those who are far from God with compassion. And it refocuses our attention on what matters most. Seeing the global church gazing at Jesus, clinging to the mission should be a catalyst for us because it was a catalyst for the early church. Look at chapter eight, verse four. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So they're, they're, they run from Jerusalem, they're scattered to new places, and they just preach Jesus. How amazing is that? They go and they tell. They, they could have chosen to just hide or be, or be less bold, but they became more bold. And a principle for us at City on a Hill is that when we scatter, not because of persecution, but when we scatter into our daily lives, we are people who take good news with us. You know, when you first move to Boston, the one of the first questions, if you're not from here, one of the first questions you get is, hey, why did you move to Boston? Where are you from? These Christians moving into new places probably have their neighbors asking similar questions like, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Jerusalem. Why'd you leave? I've heard it's lovely this time of year. Uh, you know, they're like, oh no, it's great. Love the restaurants, love the food, had, had good neighbors. It's a good life. They had to share their story. They had to share why they moved, what had happened to them, and that gave them a platform to share the hope of Christ. First Peter 3, he's write, Peter's writing this to a group of exiles. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. When people ask about the purpose of our lives and why we are here, what if we could give a better answer than just our jobs? What if we, if we could give a better answer than just our families? What, what if it were more? What if we could say we're here because of the good news and the grace of Jesus who offers forgiveness? So it refocuses our attention, but the, local, the global church also reassures our asking. When you pray, it matters because God is faithful to answer your prayers. And when we look at Stephen's prayer and we look at the prayers of, of many in the global church, God answers prayers. He answers the prayers of desperation. And so there are three prayers of faith that the global church helps us make. Number one is for God's grace. Look at verse 59. Again, Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's a prayer you only ask if you know the answer for. It's like when your parents ask the question, did you take out the trash? They know you didn't take out the trash. It's an existential question. They want to know whether you obeyed them or not. He is putting his hope in the fact that God will receive him. He knows that he'll give him grace. And so when you see God sustaining, rescuing, helping those in trouble, you see that he answers our prayers for grace, that he's done whatever it will take to be with us. And we see that he answers prayer because God has promised to never leave us. Isaiah 41, fear not for I'm with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Those in the global church who are living day to day, they're living hand to mouth. They're living dependent upon the Lord each day are seeing these prayers for grace answered that encourages us to believe that God will answer our prayers too. 
The second prayer we can ask is for our unbelieving friends. God rescues people and he forgives them by his grace, but he uses us when we pray. He uses us when we share. And so I would just say this, don't stop praying for your lost friends. If you're a Christian, you're here because someone or someone's prayed for you. And I do believe there may be a day in heaven where you're standing around and all the people who prayed for you and shared the gospel with you, you're going to get to share an interaction with them and just talk about the ways that God used this, the multitude of people being obedient to see you come to faith. So we, we pray for our unbelieving friends. Thirdly, and then you got to look a little further into the story to see this. Hebrews 13 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. We pray for other Christians. The, the global church reminds us that we should pray for other Christians and other churches. We pray for other churches in Boston. There are really good churches in our city. There are other churches that are being faithful to teach about Jesus, and we pray for them. We want to see them succeed. We pray for churches like Lostafen in Iceland, our partner there. Uh, but also, if, if you want to know about just what's happening around the world, if you just want to know for, for, for what God is doing in places like the scene we see here in Acts 7 and 8, is there's some great ministries like the Voices of the Martyrs or the Joshua Project that you can go and see what's happening in real time in some of these places, and so you know how to pray. So it, it reassures our asking. And then lastly, the global church helps rekindle our amazement. When you see God moving in the global church, it should amaze you. It should blow you away, blow our categories away of what God can do when people, ordinary people, just like you and I, are faithful to share the gospel. The impact and the result cannot be overstated. God uses this moment so that the kingdom would advance and that more people would meet Jesus. But I think what's more amazing to me than even than the people going and sharing is who comes to faith in Christ. We look at chapter 8, verse 5, we see that the unwanted come to faith in Jesus. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now the Samaritans, it's really important we know who they are, they were often called half-breeds. There were people that the Jews did not like because going back a little further into Jewish history, the Jewish people were taken in captivity to Babylon. And there were a group of people left over that ended up intermingling with the Babylonians. And so the Jews, when they came back, called them half-breeds. They, they, they hated them. They would do whatever they could to, to stay away from them because they didn't want to be unclean. And yet we see this picture of Jesus inviting in the disregarded and the oppressed and the overlooked to himself. And the first seed of this is seen in John chapter 4 when Jesus goes to a Samaritan woman with a really checkered past and offers her grace and truth. Jesus invites those that the world would say are unwanted. But secondly is the unlikely. The gospel saves the unlikely because there's another person floating around in the background of the story, and it's a man named Saul. You might better know him by the name of Paul. We see in verse 58 that the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, meaning that he may have even been the ringleader of this. Chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of this execution. And then through that, there arose a day of great persecution against the church. And then in verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to 
prison. He was ramping up terror attacks against the church. And, and so we look at this scene and we're like, man, this is the least likely person you could imagine to come to faith. But the same Saul has his life radically changed by the hope of Jesus. Jesus meets him. He calls him to repent that he who was once an enemy of the church becomes its greatest missionary. And in fact, I just read this this morning in my, in my quiet time in Galatians chapter one. So it's not even on the screen. Paul says this of himself. He says in, in verse 23, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's an amazing statement. And what's happening in churches around the world is that they are seeing the lowest and the least likely come to faith in Jesus, and it creates great joy. God is still doing this all over the, all over the world. As people who were desperate to see the beauty and the grace of Jesus in hard places are finding it. And what's just mind-blowing is that the fastest-growing places for the Christian faith are the most hostile. Two of the most hostile places in the world, Iran and China for Christians, people who once attacked churches are now becoming leaders in those churches. It's amazing, and it should create great joy when we see that in Iran, that the Christian church has grown from 5,000 to 1 million in the last 20 years, and that in China, the church has grown from 1 million to 100 million in the last 40 years. And that's through people who are both unwanted and unlikely coming to know and trust Jesus. So my question is, is why not here? Why could this just happen over there, but not happen right in our own city? Tim Keller says that God never calls you radically in without sending you radically out. What if Christians in the church of Boston were encouraged and, and pushed and catalyzed by our friends across the globe to proclaim the gospel boldly wherever we go? To see those who don't yet know Jesus know Jesus. What if we were to serve and bless our neighbors, like it says in chapter 8, verse 7, to just bless them and do good deeds. I really do believe that those in our city right now who we would say are the least likely to come to faith are going to be the best church planners and the best missionaries. They're just still in the harvest. And God has called us to go after them. And when we go after them, what great joy we're going to see in our city. Let's pray. Let's pray.